You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 2, given in Berlin on the 18th of October, 1909. Uh, it is only notes. It is not the full stenographic report. It is entitled The Gospels, Buddha and the Two Jesus Children. Last time I was describing the contents of the lecture cycle given in Basel, where we were focusing on St. Luke's Gospel. There we alluded to a question someone might ask. Now that so much has been said about St. John's Gospel and the picture of Jesus Christ it contains, can one possibly, in respect of the other Gospels, say anything quite as enlightening, something that would make an impression as deeply moving as did St. John's Gospel? Were this to be the case, a description of the three other Gospels would not be descriptions in the sense of spiritual research. Because what we seek in spiritual scientific research should not be taken as some kind of documentary report. It should not just arrive like any other sort of transferred material, but should instead be seen as a subject that can be researched with tools of the Spirit. The spiritual researcher sets himself the task of investigating how the events of Palestine present themselves without recourse to any reports, without reference to or consideration of any literature, the research begins. Afterward, the researcher tries to demonstrate how the same truth shines toward us as it does from existing records. In connection with St. Luke's and St. John's Gospels, we have chosen to retrieve from the vast vista of the Akashic Chronicle, what can be rediscovered in those very Gospels of St. Luke and St. John. Inasmuch as the one avails oneself of the results of the spiritual researcher's activity, as described, it is as if one encounters the Gospels anew. I indicated that one has the opportunity to discuss quite different aspects of St. Luke's Gospel from those treated of in the Gospel of St. John. This latter begins with the personality of Jesus of Nazareth from the time when he was thirty years old. Here that high sun-being, the Christ-being, approaches us, and we are concerned with the last three years of the life of Christ Jesus. St. Luke, on the other hand, gives us an insight into that momentous process which enabled the mighty being of the Christ to flow into the personality of Jesus of Nazareth an insight that shows the confluence of Zarathustrianism and Buddhism. And we see how these two powerful spiritual streams met and united precisely within Jesus of Nazareth. We encountered him last time as a human personality, born as a child endowed with an exceptionally inward disposition, albeit one that could not have led his peers to an understanding of the outer physical world. Shining forth above this personality, who appeared before us 
in the form of the Nathan Jesus child, the actual Jesus of Nazareth, we see what we call the Nirmanakaya of the Buddha as the aura of this child. Nirmanakaya is the form taken on by Buddha after his ultimate incarnation, in which he attained Buddhahood. We emphasized that our Western teachings fully confirmed the contents of Eastern teachings, namely that the individuality who manifested in the 6th century BCE was indeed a bodhisattva. Such a bodhisattva attains Buddhahood in a particular embodiment, and in this state their individuality has reached a stage of development that it no longer needs to be incarnated in a physical earthly body. It is a momentous achievement when an individual no longer reincarnates. That this can be so depends not only on the level of development achieved, but on the nature of that individuality. After that incarnation, this Bodhisattva, Buddha, had no further corporeal embodiments to fulfill, and so he did not incarnate, but was from then onward manifest in the lowest contiguous level of being, namely in the ether or life body. Buddha no longer descended to material corporeality, but only to the level of an ether body. An ether body of the kind in which such an individuality continues their onward development looks, if it is seen at all, nothing like a physical body, which forms an undifferentiated, self-contained unity. An ether body of the sort described, into which the Buddha descended, does not form any such enclosed spatial unity, but is a multiplicity of separate entities. Let us bring to mind how the constituent elements of the human being split apart when that individual makes gradual progress, a process described in title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. What coheres as a unity within a normal human being, as the forces we call thinking, feeling, and willing, then exists separately, as it were, self-sufficiently. The person gains sovereignty over what they have now become, a threefold entity, or what we could call a multiplicity, as is elaborated in my book titled Occult Science and Outline. In the case of the Buddha and his subsequent incarnations, we have before us an ether body consisting of non-cohering beings. In normal human beings, it is only the principle of the physical body that holds the ether body together. When such a Bodhisattva Buddha reappears in an ether body, there is manifest, if indeed it becomes visible, a whole array or host of beings. Just such a host is described by the writer of St. Luke's Gospel when he speaks of the angels appearing to the shepherds in the fields. It was this very ether body, also called Buddha's Nirmanakaya, which hovered over the Nazarene Jesus child. And this, the totality of all that Buddha ever was, becomes the inspirer, of what now streams forth and infuses itself into Christianity. We see here how Buddhism flowed into Christianity. We need to think about this quite concretely and not as an abstraction. Whoever wants to understand how this took place in reality must be able to point to the concrete event when the Buddha 
already elevated to the next stage of advancement, integrates himself into Christianity. And this is the event described in St. Luke's Gospel as the appearance of the host of angels, which is the Nirmanakaya of the Buddha. We then heard how a second Jesus child existed, whom we called the Bethlehem Jesus, and how he was none other than the reincarnated Zarathustra, an extraordinarily precocious child in whom Zarathustra was re-embodied. This is described in the Gospel of St. Matthew, and it portrays the individuality especially well understood by Matthew, the being who brought into Christianity the Zarathustrian stream. This is why it is also described to us how this child's hereditary origin is via the royal Solomon line of the house of David, whereas the Jesus of St. Luke's Gospel originates in the priestly Nathan line, also of the house of David. If we want to understand Christianity in its profound significance, we need to be clear that the most important spiritual streams in the world had to converge within it. We see that the royal line of David divides into a Solomon and a Nathan line. In the Solomon line, kingly qualities are perpetuated. In the Nathan line, priestly qualities. Regal qualities come to the fore primarily in the first two periods of human life, qualities that radiate from an informed mastery of such world connections as bring the human being into harmony with the world. This can only take place when the forces of the physical and ether bodies are properly developed. As Zarathustra had developed primarily these forces to a state of inner completion, he had, until the age of twelve, to make use of forces emanating from physical and ether sources. He was especially endowed with these attributes as a result of traits inherited through the Solomon line. For his intended task, however, he needed those great powers that support the eye, those of the astral body, powers that could only be granted him through lines of inheritance many generations in the making. Had Zarathustra remained in a body possessing such exceptionally developed physical and etheric elements until he was aged thirty, he would have been unable to deepen his essential being to the extent that he did. At the age of twelve he therefore translocated into the Nazareth Jesus, so that from age twelve onward the individuality of Zarathustra could co-dwell within the same child as was inhabited by the Nirmanakaya Buddha. It is in this way that the confluence of these two streams took place in Jesus of Nazareth during his twelfth year. The third stream to join these was the ancient Hebrew stream. Only through this triple confluence could the individuality arise who was to receive the Christ into himself. We can ask ourselves how this ancient Hebrew spiritual stream flowed into the other streams. How indeed we can conceive of the essential properties of this old Hebrew spiritual stream. Let us first remind ourselves of what we heard about Buddha's development. What transpired in that a Bodhisattva becomes a Buddha? The individuality incarnated as the Bodhisattva Buddha had the task of transmitting the teachings of compassion and love from epoch to epoch. 
If we want to understand this, we need to be aware that human beings of ancient times existed in a completely different state of consciousness. We should avoid being as short-sighted as modern science, which believes that the same faculties have always existed in humanity, that they gradually developed from primitive beginnings, and that humanity used to subsist on the same level as animals. This is simply not so. What we identify as thinking, feeling, and willing have not always existed. The further back we go in human evolution, the more it appears to our present state of consciousness as a dim, dreamy clairvoyance. For this reason, everything that needed to be disseminated by way of teachings or moral principles had to be transmitted by means quite different than those of today. Nowadays, one can set forth certain moral principles and people understand them. When a person hears any such principle, they can say, Yes, my own reason confirms it. For this to pertain, one's own reason and conscience need to be developed. It can be tangibly proven in external history that conscience began at a specific point. Aeschylus did not yet mention conscience. The distinct soul force of conscience emerged at a precise point in history and was absent before that point. Before humanity possessed a conscience, before logical thinking existed, any appeal to rational thinking or conscience would have been like speaking to a stone or a plant. In those days when souls needed strength and impetus, this had to be infused into them. Anything concerning love, for instance, had to be induced by suggestion through the individuality of the Bodhisattva, whom we later call Buddha. The time eventually came when human beings were able to gain their own sense of the meaning of love and compassion and their own insight into the Eightfold Path. These laws with which humanity had once been endowed from on high could only be realized as teachings once Buddha was present, and for this in turn to become a reality, the Bodhisattva had to become Buddha. Every kind of human evolution has to take place at a particular time and in a particular people, from whom a number are singled out for their comprehension of such teachings. Some may find a contradiction between this and what was said earlier when it was stated that it was Christ's mission to spread love. When something such as this is said, it is essential to listen very closely. It lay within Buddha's mission to introduce the teaching of love and compassion. But Christ is that power of love. He himself brought love. There is a difference between conveying a teaching and being that teaching itself, oneself exemplifying it. This teaching was brought by Buddha precisely so that the power of love was enabled to stream downward and reveal itself on earth through a mighty sun being. It was equally essential that this power of love should manifest on earth within a people that had undergone a development different from that in which Buddha had lived. What differentiates what Buddha contributed to world evolution from what the individuality of Moses could bring? We rightly call what the Buddha contributed the great law of Dharma. Buddha introduced his teachings in such a way 
that people would recognize them as being locatable within their own souls. Moses introduced laws in a completely different way, namely as commandments. For the people to whom Moses gave his laws, it would not have been possible to present them as being rooted within individual souls. They had to be divine laws sent from on high. Whereas Buddha said, You will find the teachings I give you in the deepest forces of your soul, Moses said, The coming God confers these laws upon you. Laws needed to be given on the basis that one people was deemed to be at a younger stage of development than another, that certain forces had not yet matured. All development follows the maxim that nothing proceeds in a straight line. We usually conceive of development as a later event following a preceding one. But this is not how development works. It comes about on the basis of other preconditions. If we observe a growing plant, we see the germ or seed, then the stem growing upward. We see how leaves and finally the blossom emerge. All this point development ceases to be linear, subsequent evolving from previous, and pollination occurs. A new influx into the process is needed, a grain of pollen from another plant. Spiritually, the most diverse forces and states now stream together. In Palestine, Zarathustrianism and Buddhism had to unite with another stream, one which could infuse them with comparatively youthful forces. For many long ages, the law of Jehovah had held sway within this people. Had they lived at a stage when Buddha could have appealed to their individual souls in 600 BCE, they would not later have had the requisite youthful forces to contribute. They still needed to receive laws from their Godhead that did not appeal to their individual souls. This Levantine people needed to be held at an earlier stage of consciousness. A hypothetical analogy can be made concerning the individual. Imagine that someone wanted to enforce creativity at a certain age. This should clearly not be attempted. For this a child would have to be brought up atypically, because if I try to teach him something at age seven that would normally be taught later, I have deprived him of developing other soul faculties later in life. If I wait until he is ten, when he presents with more matured forces, he retains his youthful freshness and can evince a later creativity that would otherwise have been destroyed. You see how this pertained in the Near East. The Hebrew people were held back in just such a way. They could not yet absorb Buddha's teachings of compassion and love, but were given this in the form of a commandment. They did not receive the call of Buddha to develop, of themselves, the teachings of compassion and love. There was only one place in world progress where people were then most advanced, that the Bodhisattva Buddha could convey his teaching. Once quite different strengths had developed elsewhere, this spiritual stream would join the others in another place. Where do we need to look to find what flows down through the generations of a people? Upon what does this depend? By what means does the individual assume whatever is incumbent upon their people? Until the age of seven, human beings are sheathed in an etheric mantle 
which they then slough off. However, they remain enveloped in an astral sheath, which is similarly sloughed off at puberty. It is only then that the astral body is born. Between the ages of twelve and fifteen, when the astral body is born, it contains all the forces held in common with folk identity. The astral sheath, which is now cast off, contains all attributes until then harbored inwardly, traits held in common with and characteristic of belonging to a particular people. What happens to the sheath that is cast aside? This astral sheath containing folk characteristics unites with those sheaths similarly cast off by ancestors. Here is something resembling a chain. While the individual still has this sheath until the age of fourteen, he is a link in the chain that reaches back to his ancestors. To which degree of ancestry does this extend? To the forty-second degree, to the six times seventh degree. This is how humans are connected with their ancestors, and this was well known in ancient times. It is also known today within spiritual science. Because humans are connected in this way with their ancestors, the ancient Egyptians ensured that in their Book of the Dead the human soul appeared before forty-two judges. If a particular quality or trait is to come to the fore that enables an individual to be embedded within a people, all the related ancestors must be aligned in such a way that each member of the chain brings that trait to expression. If Zarathustra was to incarnate, then it had to be into a sheath that bore the fundamental features of his people. This is why St. Matthew describes Zarathustra as being born as the forty-second descendant after Abraham, born into a line that contained all the characteristics of his people. This is how those influences entered the third stream, of which we have been speaking. The end of Lecture 2